Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. Uh, today is the first day of Advent for 2021. And if you are new, welcome. Thanks for checking us out. If not, welcome back. Uh, if you are new with us, right now we're in the middle of this new series that we started a few weeks back called Growing in Christ. We've put a card in the corner so you can go back and see what you've missed. And the reason uh, we started this is because of a lot of conversations with people in our community who want to grow spiritually. Uh, obviously, that's part of the Christian life, uh, becoming more and more like Jesus. And many of whom uh, in our community who have been following Jesus for a long time, uh, they've said that they have not been taught the basics of what that means exactly. And so we tackled head on last week the idea that church, uh, just going to church is not enough and just dropping your kids off at youth group is not enough for them. Just going through the motions is not enough. And the way that you actually learn to be like Jesus is to develop certain practices in your life. And then gather people around you who, you who can help you make good on those practices because practices eat intentions for lunch. Uh, the situation that many Christians find themselves in is very much like when Jesus approaches the Pharisees in John chapter 5, uh, kind of with the exception that if you're aware you are in this situation and you're not growing and you don't want it to stay the same, then you're very unlike the Pharisees. But uh, we talked about this scripture uh, last week when Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father doing in John 5, but later on in that passage he says this in verse 39. Uh, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. The, and these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So these are Jesus' words, and he's saying, you spent your whole life in the scriptures which culminate and point directly to me, Jesus, but you missed it. You don't see it and you won't follow me. So uh, we do want to spend our life in the scriptures as one of the essential spiritual disciplines that leads us to growth, but we don't want to miss the main event, which is Jesus. So I want to jump back in and take a look at this diagram that we've been looking at the last few weeks. And this diagram shows us that we all have this capacity for growing into the things that Jesus say are the marks of maturity, loving God and loving others. So spiritually, uh, spiritual maturity happens as we grow in both of these capacities. And we acknowledge the fact that everyone has a direction that they tend to lean toward, especially at different stages of maturity. So for some of you out there, the challenge for you is to lean more towards God on the vertical axis because it's really easy for you to be around people and have lots of relationships and spend all of your time on the horizontal axis. You thrive off of a relationship with others, but you have no idea how to grow in relationship with God. And if you had to sit in a room alongside Jesus, you might, you might actually panic. Uh, and for others of you, the challenge is to lean towards other people and more meaningful relationships because it's really easy for you to be by yourself and just you and God hanging out, but you never interact with others. And the challenge is to figure out how to commit uh, to the one you lean toward and the one you lean away from, uh, kind of like realize where you're at and then find a balance so that you will mature spiritually. In other words, there's a proper tension between both axes. And the other thing that we've tried to tackle uh, in this series is we're talking about the parts that, that we play, that God plays, and that others play in our spiritual maturity and our growth. So we talked about God's part, their part, anybody other than you, and my part or your part. When you look at that, when you start to realize, what you start to realize is that there are all these factors in your life that you can't control. The only part you can control is your part or my part on the chart. And 
uh, we're going to be talking about the, that more in the next week, but there are two parts in that equation that I cannot control, which are God's part and their part. You and I don't get to play the role of God. Quite honestly, this is what's wrong with a lot of us. There are a lot of different ways that we try to have control of everything around us. And we talked about this last week when we talked about Job. We can do all kinds of incredible things like mine the depths of the earth for all kinds of treasures, but we can't do everything. We can't control the universe and all the people around us. God is the creator of everything. He made everything. He rules everything. There's so much that we don't see or even know about that he's doing and he's holding everything together. And all of those things are God's part. They aren't our part. Uh, but then there's their part, anybody other than you. And it's necessary to talk about this because too often, instead of working on ourselves, we first and foremost try to play God's role. And then we try to control others instead of doing the hardest work of all in ourselves. And it's easy to shift blame to others. Um, I've noticed this over the years with my driving. When I'm, uh, when I'm driving myself or when I'm a passenger with others driving, even when I'm driving and people are being a backseat driver and saying things, you'll, you'll be late for an appointment or work or a game you got to get the kids to or a practice or something. And you're driving like mad to get where you need to go. And it's always other people's fault when they slow you down or impede your progress or do something stupid. And we even say things and we talk to other drivers in our little bubble, even when, even when we know they can't hear us. And people are so obsessed with this that they're always even now posting instant karma traffic videos on social. They're like, I want to see somebody else get it because they ticked me off. So never mind that you knew that if you stayed up late after the kids were asleep to binge a couple episodes on Netflix, even though you knew it would make it harder to get up in the morning and that it would cause a negative kind of domino effect on the whole morning routine before you could get out the door. And then you blame the kids for almost getting to school late. And then instead of programming the coffee to brew at home the night before, you're like, oh man, I better go to Starbucks because if I don't, I'm going to have a headache later. Uh, not to mention that it, it's like a thousand times cheaper to make your own coffee, you know, and at the end of the month, you'll be upset about something else when you look at your budget and you're like, where did all the money go? But when you get there to Starbucks, the line is super long and you're trapped and you can't get out of it. And then you're late for work, but it's everyone else's fault. It's the people's fault in line at Starbucks and it's the Starbucks employees fault for going slow. And it's the stupid drivers and the bad traffic. And in our case here in West Seattle, it's the bridge is down and ah, but it's not your fault right? For binging Netflix and going to bed late and hitting snooze on your alarm in the morning. How much time and energy do you and I spend and consume on trying to control things in others that are outside of our control and we shift blame and that kind of thing? Really, how much time and energy do you spend trying to control things? I want you to really think about that for a minute. Think about your workplace. How much time do you try to spend or do you spend to try and manipulate things so that your boss or coworkers or other employees will do the things that you want them to do? Parents, think about your kids. Husbands and wives, think about your spouse. How much time and energy do you consume trying to control your spouse? You know, convinced that if we just do it this way, then I can force my husband or I can force my wife to see it my way. Of course, you wouldn't dare say it that way out loud, but you sure think it sometimes. I want to go on to another passage today in John 21. This is after, we're going to hit a couple of places today. Later we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. But this is after the resurrection and the disciples, they see Jesus on the beach and Peter jumps out of the boat. And after they finish eating breakfast in verse 
15, this is where Jesus reinstates Peter. He asks him three times if Peter still loves him. And of course, Peter says, I do love you. And Jesus' constant refrain is for Peter to feed his sheep and to follow him. And you can go and read that on your own. But the thrust of this conversation is that Jesus is telling Peter that his work with him is not done. He's saying, I still have a call for your life. And it's kind of this really awesome uh, climactic moment, this amazing uh, story at the end of John 21. Jesus is telling Peter, there's still a path I have for you to walk. I know you think you're disqualified, but your best days are not behind you. Don't let yourself be defined by those past moments anymore, those past mistakes. Let yourself be defined by what you choose right now and what comes next. But even in that wonderful moment where Jesus reassures Peter that his grace is so wonderful and that he's not done with his life, it's like Peter immediately says, "Woo!" he turns around and immediately he does a face plant. Boom. Verse 20, Peter, it says this, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, he asked Lord, what about him? What about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. So in this moment, Jesus is telling Peter, your calling is not over. Your job is not done. Uh, you're not, the things that you've done in your past walk, I don't want you to think about those. And Peter's like, okay, fine. Well, what about him? What about them? And Jesus says, what about them? I'm not talking about them. This is your path we're talking about. I've got plans for them, and, I, and I've got a path for them, but I have a path for you, and the path I have for you is not for them or for him, and vice versa. Don't worry about the plan I have for him. And we do this thing that Peter is doing right here. We do it all the time. And that's where we come back to that age-old problem that, we, that we're faced with as well. We can only do our part. There's this thing inside of us where we want to project kind of our God calling, the calling that God has on our life and our God experience. And we want to project that on everybody else. So God is doing his part in your life and God is doing his part in their life. And the deal is you can't make that person walk your path, nor should you. And you cannot walk the other person's path for them. You cannot walk each other's path. But the beautiful thing about community and the family of faith in the church is that sometimes we find ourselves on this same path together and our paths intersect and converge for uh, certain times and seasons. And by the way, this whole discussion about these paths, you know, th this is why marriage is so difficult because it's the only kind of, it's the only covenant relationship that almost seems to have an exception to this reality. Uh, even the parent-child relationship is not the same. You have a path and they have a path and you can't control ultimately the path that God has for your kids. Obviously, that's not to say you can't shape and mold them and guide them and teach them and pray for them and give them the truth about the love of God and disciple them, especially by how you show them that you are following God with specific practices. And the thing that makes marriage so difficult, though, is that you take these two individuals with two separate callings, two different paths, and then those two people covenantally agree that they're going to do the hard work of taking these two paths and making one larger path out of both of them. How do we take these two paths and make them one story? It's taking two kind of different subplots and mashing them together into one grander and beautiful narrative. So it's kind of like the one covenantal relationship where you don't get to go, hey, that's your part, go ahead, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do over here. You don't get to do that in marriage. 
with, with, so with the marriage exception aside, there are all these other relationships in our lives where you can't walk the path of that other person and they can't walk yours. And you can't walk each other's for each other. But then there's another piece of this their part section of the conversation. The first way we have to deal with their part is we, we get all concerned with kind of trying to play God's part and dabble in the lives of others. And the next part is we have to talk about uh, when we place value judgments on the walk of others. And I'm not talking about if you've entered into a relationship with someone or a group of people that you've given permission to speak into your life about growing in Christ, like a discipleship group where you're like, I want to grow on this path of loving God and loving others, so I need you to tell me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. What I am talking about is the day-to-day judgments we put on other people. And I want to go to the Sermon on the Mount to give us some perspective on this. Uh, the part in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. It says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now what you need to understand is that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is building upon one idea and moving on to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, and it's all fitting together in a cohesive unit. And it all has to do with spiritual maturity. So if you just jump straight to the last thing that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount and you try to do it and you're a brand new Christian, it's going to be very, 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 very hard and difficult. Like loving your enemy? You don't just come up out of the waters of baptism and you're automatically able to love your enemies from day one as a follower of Jesus. You're going to have to work on those spiritual disciplines for a long time before you get to that place. So in this section, Jesus makes this shift into a new area of the sermon. And he says, you have to be very aware of where your treasure lies. Like, where's your heart at? Where's your passion? Deep down, what do you want to do more than anything else? Because that is where your heart's going to be. And if you've been in the church for a minute or two, like where we automatically go when we read this is to material possessions here. And that's absolutely applicable. Uh, in our context for today, today's age as Christians. But what Jesus is talking about here is also much, much bigger than just your money and your stuff. So when Jesus says to be aware of where your treasure lies, he's talking about your heart, your heart treasure, the treasure that's at the center of your heart. But then as he goes on, Jesus starts talking about these other things. And you might get confused. Are these connected? He says this thing about eyes being lamps and everything gets a little bit more confusing, starting in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, literally in the Greek there, it says, if you have a good eye, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, and there again in the Greek, that means if you have a bad eye, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So Jesus starts this very common Jewish teaching. In the Hebrew, the phrase, the good eye, it's an idiom. The the phrase in Hebrew is ayin tovah, which means good eye. And bad eye is ayin ra'ah. The, the rabbis say you either have ayin tovah or you have ayin ra'ah. You either have a good eye or a bad eye. If you're reading this right now in your NIV Bible, or if you pause this and do that, it probably has a footnote for the words healthy and unhealthy that says the, the, that that word can imply generosity. Because in the rabbi's world back then, to have a good eye meant that you saw the world through a lens of goodness. You think the world is fundamentally a good place. You have, uh, you have an ayin tovah. You have a good eye. And if 
you think the world is fundamentally a good place, it changes the way that you see everything. Like you're convinced that God cares for your life so much that you're confident he will provide for your needs. That's the lens that you look at life through. But if you have a bad eye, if you think the world is fundamentally a bad, dark place, if you have ayin ra'ah, it changes everything also about the way you see the world. So you'll cling to what you have and you'll resent those with more and you refuse to help those with less. And we've talked about this before as a church, using the terms of abundance and scarcity. You can see the world through ayin tovah, a worldview of abundance where there is more than enough. Or you can see the world through ayin ra'ah, a worldview of scarcity. There's where you like, where you're like, there's not enough to go around. So I need to hoard it. I need to hoard everything all to myself because everyone's trying to steal it from me and things are going to run out and it's a bad, bad place. So there's ayin tovah and there's ayin ra'ah. And Jesus says, be incredibly aware of where your treasure lies because that's where your heart is. His very next sentence starts talking about the lenses through which you view the world. Do you suppose that the lens uh, through which you view the world affects where your treasure lies? Do you think that if you have a good eye, your treasure will be in heavenly things where moth and rust do not destroy? But if you have a bad eye, where will your treasure lie? And the answer is it'll lie here in temporal stuff, because I got to get enough. I got to protect the retirement thing and the career thing and the benefits thing and the politics thing. And I, I got to get it all figured out. Ayin Raya creates, a, Ra'a creates a, a world where I store up treasures here on earth. And that's where moth and rust destroy. But Ayin Tova creates trust. And I store up for myself treasures in heaven when I trust. Treasures like mercy and compassion and love and justice and generosity. So then Jesus goes another place in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and money. Money is basically representative of the God of not having enough. So if you not have enough, then you're bowing down to the God of stinginess. You can't serve both the God of abundance and the God of scarcity. You can't serve both of them simultaneously. You have to choose which kind of eye you want to have, and you have to work at it. And the question is, where is Jesus going to go next? In verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow or reap or store away in barns? And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, at a single hour to your life. You suppose his teaching on worry might have anything to do with ayin tovah that came before? I already told you that each section builds upon the previous one in this teaching. So let me ask you this. What's the antidote to worry? Ayin tovah, to trust. Trust is ayin tovah. And, and then he goes on in verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Worry, in this context, would be ayin ra'ah, 
And if you have ayin ra'ah, your whole body is full of darkness, all of that worrying. That doesn't sound like a life I'd want to live. Worry fills my life, my body, myself with darkness. If my body is full of darkness, how great is that darkness, Jesus says. Anybody relate to that? Anybody out there relate to worry and anxiety? How, how great is that darkness? How much does that worry and anxiety control your decisions? Well, he goes on in verse 32 and says, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Well, I wonder where he's going to go next. Probably totally unrelated to Ayin Tovah, right? No. What's the very next word in the passage? The very next word in the passage is therefore. And we've talked about this before, but anytime you see a therefore in the scriptures, it means that everything that has just been talked about has been leading up to this gigantic main huge point, this this massive implication. He says in verse 34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then it keeps going. And it keeps going, but I think in most Bibles you think, oh, well, we moved on to something totally new. Or have we? It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So I want to be real here for a minute. This passage gets thrown around a lot. Like, I think it's it's really like our culture's favorite verse. Don't judge me, bro. Run! A big, stupid, ugly ogre. They judge me before they even know me. You know? So what is Jesus talking about here? Because he says, don't judge or you will be judged. In Jesus' world and context, they had three different concepts of judgment. And it's very similar to our own, to be honest. Not a lot has changed. One concept was like the judgment you receive in a courtroom from a judge. And another kind of judgment is just using discernment. I need to use my own, my best judgment. Discerning between truth and falsehood and light and darkness between holy and common or base. Jesus isn't talking about either one of these first types of judgment. What he is talking about is when you discern the light and dark in another person's life. And that's where it gets dangerous. It's like you took the first two types of judgment, meshed them together in a bad way, and became judge, jury, and executioner. Jesus tells us here to be very wary of that kind of judgment because when you're looking at another person, we said this before, you don't have all the facts and figures, you don't have all the information, and you're weighing their very being in your own view, and you're placing value on something. And so when you practice judgment and discernment when it pertains to people, Jesus says you can't put a value statement on a person because whose job is that? Is it your job at all? Is it your job even a little bit? It's God's job. You can't put a value judgment on another human being. Uh, Do not judge, lest you too be judged, is what he says. So let's go back to what Jesus said in the beginning of this teaching. The point at the very beginning, before we get to the end of the therefore, and don't judge and all that, the point was ayin tovah, the good eye. And that concept of ayin tovah is what is permeating each part of this teaching we've talked about today. In other words, when you look at other people, do you look at them with a good eye or a bad one? Because this has huge ramifications. I want to tell you about a guy named Rabbi Nachman. He was a late 18th century rabbi. Uh, He was born in the late 1770s, I want to say. He was a Hasidic Jew. And his main philosophy was that the spiritual life was about closeness to God and speaking to God like you would a best friend. Rabbi Nachman said, this along these lines. When you look at other people, 
make sure you measure them with the cup of innocence. I mean, that's pure ayin tovah, the good eye perspective on life. What I want you to see is that Jesus is still talking about ayin tovah when he's talking about judging others. And what's interesting about what Rabbi Nachman said is that 1,800 years before him, when Jesus was on the scene, Jesus said something almost exactly the same. He said, don't judge. We just read this. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. And they measured in a lot of ways back then. One, one was with cups, uh, which echoes what Rabbi Nachman said. Verse 3 here says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? In this next section, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, you can measure others with the cup of innocence or the cup of guilt. Ayin tova or ayin ra'a. But however you choose to see the world, it's the same measure that it's going to be measured unto you. He's not talking about like instant karma there when he says that. If you have a bad eye, he's just saying it's going to be measured to you because that's what fills your own life. If that's how you see life, that's what fills you, fills you. Because if you choose to see the world through the cup of guilt and judgment and shame, your body is going to be filled with guilt and judgment and shame. In other words, darkness. And how great is that darkness? Like, I don't want to go around life like that. Brene Brown, who some of you may have heard of her before, she has done like these brilliant TED Talks, uh, some of the most watched TED Talks of all time, in fact. Uh, and it's interesting because they're on shame and vulnerability. She wrote a really good book a while back called Rising Strong. And in one of the chapters, she talks about this experience where she was asked to go speak at a conference and she was assigned this room to be with what she said was really like this horrible individual. And she's so ticked off and hacked off about the experience that she goes to her therapist and she's trying to talk, tell her therapist about all this. And then at one point, her therapist says, do you think that this other person you're with was trying to do the best that they could? And Brene Brown is immediately like, heck no, no way. And her therapist says, well, I can tell you that my approach to therapy is that everybody in this world is trying to do the best they can. And basically, what Brene figures out is that those who know how to rise strong, the title of her book, and, you know, put, it, put, it, put that another way, people who know how to grow in spiritual maturity, loving God and loving others, these are people that choose to see the world through ayin tovah. They're trying to see the best in the world, in everyone, and in themselves. So she does this, a bunch of research, and she found that people who are growing, who are maturing, we might say those people who are successful, are people who look at others, and they see them as human beings who are doing the best that they can. You see, part of the reason that we struggle with letting other people do their part is because we assume that they aren't doing their best. We assume that they are out to get us. We assume that they are out for our destruction. And that's all ayin ra'ah, a bad eye. And Jesus said, that's a lousy way to live. And frankly, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we would have to say that that kind of perspective on the world is not the perspective of Jesus. And if it's not his perspective and he's like that, don't live that way, live like me. He's like, if you're going to live that way, then it's sin. Frankly, that's what he's saying. Because Jesus said, which means God said, the way I want you to see the world, my followers, is through ayin tovah. That's how I saw the world, is what he said. So I want to leave you with some implications and challenges. 
And these are really simple truths, uh, but they're also profound. But the problem is that we don't apply them enough. I know I don't. I mean, maybe you will recognize that you don't either, and we can work on this together. But the first one is this. We cannot make others walk our path, nor can we walk the path of others for them. Uh, I know you're passionate about the path God has called you to. I know that you think you understand other people's paths. I know how much I think I understand this for others, but I can't walk their path for them. I can't say with any shred of certainty what God is doing in my life is what God is doing in their life. I cannot make others walk my path, and I can't walk their path for them. They can't live vicariously through me, and I can't live vicariously through them. The next implication is we can't make judgments about the value of others. Who gets to do that? God alone gets to do that. It's like we said last week, it's God's part to convict people of whatever it is they need to be convicted of. I can't make people be obedient to God. They have to decide for themselves if they will follow him. All we can do is our part. We can't live out their part for them. I know people make bad decisions. People make fantastically stupid decisions and mistakes. But here's the thing. Have you ever made stupid decisions? Yeah, we've all made stupid decisions. Have you been trying to do your best, though? Have they? Ayentullah. Because that assumption becomes a value judgment very quickly if we think that they aren't doing their best. To look at other people and say, they're not trying their best. This is why they're making that decision. I know why they're making that decision. Whoa, you know? How do you know? Oh, you, somebody must have been, God was passing out glasses that let you see that, I guess. And I didn't know those were on sale. He handed them out last week and you can see the motives of others' hearts and know with certainty why a person is making a certain decision. No, uh-uh, that's not the way it works. We don't know. That's their part and we don't get to make the value judgment on them. Only God can see that. And only God can make that judgment. And whenever we see that play out in scripture, whenever we see this play out in scripture, God's like, I love them. I still love them. They're good. I love them. I love as much as I love. He's like, I love them as much as I love you. And that is always what Jesus does. The third implication is that the eye is the lamp of the body. Choosing to assume the best in others, it frees us. It frees you and me to pursue our own calling. And it fills our whole body with light when we're free like that. What if we were so filled with light that when somebody wronged us, we tried to figure out if there was any explanation at all as to why that person might have thought that they were doing the right thing, even when they wronged us. Now that's a different perspective, isn't it? I mean, that's ayin tovah on steroids. Crazy, right? We don't live this way. If somebody wrongs me, if somebody wrongs you, if somebody wrongs us, we're like, I knew they were out to get me and I'm gonna get them back. But, but what if you didn't know their motivations, but you proceeded to act as if the wrong way they treated you was really because they thought they were doing the right thing? And I know that's not typically the case, and I'm definitely not talking about when people purposefully do really messed up stuff to other people. But how many times, I mean, have you ever been in this situation where you assumed the worst about somebody else and then you were proved embarrassingly wrong? Here's the thing. Even if they were out to get you, what is it that's going to fill your whole body with light? Even if they were out to get you, what is it that's going to set you free to do what God wants you to do with your life. That brings us to our last implication. We can't spend our energy trying to control things that are outside of our control. And that brings us full circle back to the question, 
that I asked when we started out today, how much energy do you and I spend trying to control other people? I mean, I know we would never say it that way with our words out loud. Like, I'm trying to control that person. We wouldn't say it that way. But that is what we're trying to do. And just think about it for a minute. We actually do this quite a lot. We do it with our marriages, with our kids, our families, our, our parents, our friends, our coworkers. It's the only, I mean, literally, it's the only explanation for what goes on Facebook. When I look at Facebook, like, people are trying to control each other. We cannot spend our energy trying to control things, especially other people that are outside of our control. God wants us to do so many other things. Back to that story about Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I got a job for you to do. That's what I need you to do. I don't need you to spend your energy worrying about John. I need you to do what I've called you you to do. So don't worry about John. Let John be John. You be Peter. You and I need to be ourselves and get on with the work and the path that Jesus has set before us because he's still got work for us to do. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.